when you tell kids in the developed world that they have to stay home and they can't go to school, they're going to play a lot of video games. In the first week of lockdowns in some of the first states and cities, gaming was up 75% already. Welcome to World vs. Virus, a podcast from the World Economic Forum that aims to make sense of the COVID-19 outbreak. This week, video games. Already the biggest sector of the global entertainment industry, and the pandemic means it's just getting bigger. Millions and millions played online. Only 200 qualified for the Fortnite World Cup Finals, and this is the last game. In a world where sport has been put in lockdown, will esports replace physical games? And why were gamers better prepared than the rest of us for COVID-19? Coronavirus is a shock to everyone, but I think being a part of the gaming community makes coronavirus easier to deal with. Subscribe to World vs. Virus on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The battle bus has launched one more time! I'm Robin Pomeroy, and this is World vs. Virus. Right here. Later in the show, the search for a vaccine. We're currently working on the strategic question, which is how do we get to a billion doses? There are around 100 projects underway around the world trying to make a vaccine. We'll hear from two companies in that race, Johnson & Johnson and the CEO of biotech pioneer Moderna. But first... One more time! Gaming. A big winner from the pandemic. You know, imagine he wins $3 million here. His parents are going to ask him to take the trash out, and he's going to laugh. But yeah. why should we care? <laughs> He'll just pay his butler to do that, I guess, at that point. Here's why. In terms of scale, about 10 times the size of the music industry. And, and larger than the music industry and the feature film theatrical uh, business combined and doubled. So just in terms of the foundation that esports is built on, it's literally far and away the largest sector of the overall global entertainment industry. That's Mike Sepso, a businessman often known as the godfather of esports. In the early 2000s, he helped pioneer what has now become a global industry. Simply put, esports is watching other people play video games. Depending on who you are, and perhaps how old you are, that idea either sounds as natural as watching golf or football on TV, or it's one of the weirdest ways of spending your leisure time that you've ever heard. The question I've been asked by people my age and older for the past 15 years has been, why would anybody want to watch other people play video games? You know, and the answer is, why would anyone want to watch grown men chase a small ball around a perfectly good grass field, right? This, this, same thing in traditional sports. And those traditional sports are now closed. Basketball, soccer, tennis, even the Olympics, all postponed. So playing and watching video games has become a refuge for sports fans in lockdown. When you tell kids in the developed world that they have to stay home and they can't go to school, they're going to play a lot of video games, probably more than, than usual. The other thing that esports has helped to create is not just gaming as the sort of first party consumption of the activity or the experience of gaming, but also the secondary activity of either live streaming or recording and posting that VOD of your gaming session. Mike Sepso didn't invent professional esports, but he was instrumental in bringing it to the big time in the States. He co-founded Major League Gaming, or MLG, and now runs an esports infrastructure platform called Vindex. Gaming is not what it was when I was a kid in the 80s, which is sort of a solitary thing where you're trying to, you know, almost unlock a puzzle or beat a machine or create a high score. Gaming has mostly been for the past, you know, close to 20 years, a social competitive activity. So whether you're playing, you know, Words with Friends or Candy Crush or you're playing Call of Duty or Overwatch or Valorant or League of Legends, you're gaming and you're mostly 
com competing against somebody else. So that social component of it is what then led to formalization of leagues and competitions. You know, kind of started very grassroots when MLG got its start. It grew actually out of South Korea originally in the late 90s and early 2000s. We kind of imported the concept to North America and built MLG, which looked a lot like kind of North American sports league. So esports is the professional competitive stuff that, as Sepso puts it, sits on top of gaming, which itself is a 150 to 170 billion dollar industry and growing. In the second week of March, Verizon released a stat that in the U.S. Their network usage specific to gaming had increased 75%. Effectively, in the first week of the initial kind of quarantining of or lockdowns in, in some of the first states and cities, gaming was up 75% already, just in terms of network usage. The video consumption platforms, specifically YouTube and Twitch, which Twitch is the Amazon owned kind of live streaming gaming component. And I think it's misunderstood that gaming is one of, if not the biggest content formats on all of YouTube globally. So hundreds of millions of people a day consuming gaming content on YouTube. Those two platforms went up significantly too, because not only were lots of young people home from school and work and playing a lot more video games, but they are also consuming video content of other people's sessions of video gaming. Before, when I had my full-time job, I only really got to play maybe two, three hours a night before I had to go to bed or get ready for work and stuff like that. Mercutio is a 20-year-old gamer in New York for whom lockdown really does have an upside. Now that pretty much my whole day is clear, I pretty much just play all day. I could get up in the morning, get online, and then not get offline until basically bedtime. The days when Mercutio only got to play for a paltry three hours a day are over. Like the pros he watches online, he's on his console full time. Now is this something that the rest of us should be worried about? On the contrary, says Mike Sepso. I always hear from a lot of parents, I hear what you do, but my kid just spends hours in the basement with a headset on all by himself. And I always say, your kid is not all by himself. He's probably talking to 30 different people from around the world. In fact, he's probably got a substantially bigger, you know, network of close associates than you do because you're restricted to your, your home, your work, whatever community organizations you live in real life, your kids who are connected online through gaming have potentially hundreds of friends that they talk to routinely. Those of us over 40 had to go, you know, hand to hand and recreate social networks to keep in touch with people while we're stuck inside that we would otherwise normally see. Reality is most active gamers have hundreds of people across their Twitch, YouTube, various games, platforms like Discord where they communicate with each other. The connectivity that they already have is already there. One of the best-known games is Fortnite, but it's much more than just a game. Sepso calls it one of the world's fastest-growing social networks. It also scored a couple of landmarks last year. Hip-hop artist Travis Scott performed a virtual gig inside the game, watched by millions of fans and their avatars. And the final of the World Championship of Fortnite, where the winner pocketed $3 million, was played in front of tens of thousands of people at the Flushing Meadows Tennis Stadium. Sepso's company was involved in broadcasting it, a feat that blended 300 different cameras and video inputs. COVID-19 means that kind of live event is on hold, but unlike physical sports, the competitions and the broadcasts are not. Anyone beats him, your Fortnite World Champion, Booga! That infrastructure that we've got also allowed us in the weeks leading up 
to the shutdown to pull out a lot of that technology infrastructure, relocate it to engineering and producers' homes. And so we've continued through the crisis to actually be able to remotely broadcast it. Professional gaming has its superstars, but is someone who wields a joystick really an athlete? I've spent 18 years avoiding the question, are, are esports players athletes? Because I grew up a child athlete and I've seen a lot of people become successful as esports players who started out as child athletes in you know, two, three sports. One of the things that people don't realize is most professional athletes are young people who are highly competitive. Guess what they do when they're not playing soccer or tennis or football or whatever? Most of them are gamers. And what's happening is a lot of pro athletes who would otherwise be on a physical field of play or at home playing their favorite game and broadcasting it. And so to the obvious question, will esports, which is thriving during this crisis, at some point replace physical sports, which are suffering so badly? Esports will probably push out some real world sports, for sure. I think it'll take quite a long time. If you look at the demographics of viewers of traditional sport, and then look at the demographics of people watching gaming and esports, there's almost a 20-year gap. People under 30, especially, generally speaking, have never watched television networks. They're watching Twitch and YouTube and Netflix and things like that, streaming platforms. They're consuming more video than anybody else does, but they're consuming it through different distribution channels. None of that content, because it's locked into primarily linear distribution television deals, none of it appears on the internet. It created a massive vacuum. And that's the hole that esports has filled. If you're talking about missing an entire baseball season in America, if you're talking about not having the second half of the NBA season, no finals, and potentially not starting the season again later this year, you might wind up in a situation where enough time goes by without that sport and people start to develop other fan and viewing behaviors and it might gravitate towards esports. My dad in his 70s is not going to start watching esports right now. He's going to wait for golf to come back critical parts of the younger slice of that demographic group of traditional sports fans who might have watched a little bit of esports before, but you know maybe 80% traditional sport, 20% esport, and that might shift pretty significantly. And with the size of the global audience that we're talking about, that you know, the small percentage shifts can mean tens of millions of people. I think the coronavirus is a shock to everyone, but I think being a part of the gaming community or or just being engaged in the digital world makes coronavirus easier, like easier to deal with. Us gamers, we already knew how to stay safe from coronavirus. We stay home and we can hang out with our friends on the computer just like we would hang out with our friends outside. Not exactly the same. And I think that anyone who isn't a gamer yet trying to survive this whole ordeal should definitely try and get into with the digital world. My thanks to gamer Makusho Hartshu and godfather of esports Mike Sepso, CEO of Vindex. If you want to know more about the rapid changes in the way we produce and consume entertainment and news, check out the World Economic Forum's platform, search for Value in Media. Around a third of the world's population has been under some form of lockdown. Now, many countries are cautiously reopening, but it does seem clear that we won't return to anything like normal until there's a vaccine. So when will we get one and how? That was the question at a World Economic Forum online conference where two companies working on a virus told us how things were going. First, the good news. Stéphane Boncel, CEO of US biotechnology company Moderna, said things could be a whole lot worse. We got lucky on this one, even though there's a lot of suffering, a lot of people worried. If you think about it first, Uh, Our children are mostly not impacted. Think about the calamity this will be right now if we were losing 10% of the children. 
uh, that would be just like you know the, the Spanish flu. So that's one good news. The other good news is this is not an HIV like virus. Again, HIV was discovered in the 80s, early 80s. There's still no vaccine approved to this date against HIV. So the good news is the biology of COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, as the virus is called, is not very complicated. Not complicated, perhaps in some senses, but the challenge of developing a vaccine that is proven to work and be safe and which can be manufactured and delivered to billions of people, oh, that's complicated. This is Seth Berkeley, Chief Executive Officer of Gavi, previously the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunisation, a public-private partnership supported by, among others, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We have a global problem that requires a global solution. We need the best science in the world. We need the best manufacturing in the world. And obviously, we're going to need industry from around the world to engage. If we have anybody left over anywhere as a reservoir of virus, it not only threatens them, but, but threatens the world. So how many vaccine projects are underway around the world? Around 100. How many will succeed? Far fewer. This is Paul Stoffels, Chief Scientific Officer of Johnson & Johnson. Several different companies started vaccine activities, including biotechs, large companies, and also academic teams. More than 100 vaccines initiatives are ongoing in different technologies. And that increases the probability of success because there are today new vaccines like DNA vaccines, mentioned RNA, but also older versions, protein and, and, and vector vaccines. All of them are on, on let's say, put on tracks to, to get there. What's going to be important here and what's very unique is that we go have to go so fast and so huge because where Ebola was a problem in Central Africa with a few hundred thousand vaccines, you can, you can, you can, you can get it under control. Here you need billions of vaccines and that's where at the same time is going to be important as well as, uh, as manufacturing capacity. And that's where industry comes in, I think, is that, that you need a large contingent of people with a lot of experience to develop vaccines fast and globally. And then you need in parallel, not just sequential, but you need to start already preparing manufacturing long before you have your, your clinical results available. And if you all take it together, the fastest we can est estimate that vaccines will be available, we started earlier this year, it's in the first half of next year, and, and that will be done in emergency use. If you go for full approval of vaccines where you do phase two and three, it's going to take two, three years before many of the vaccines will reach any stage of being usual, useful. Moderna's Stefan Bonsell described how his company hoped to get regulatory approval for a vaccine by the end of this year. We are days away from starting our phase two with 600 subject healthy people. Of phase one that was run by Tony Fauci at the NIH was 45 people. And our goal is ideally in the summer to start very large uh, clinical trial, phase three or pivotal studies. And you're talking, you know, thousands of people, maybe, you know, up to 10,000 people across many different hospitals around the world. Uh, and the goal will be to be in a position to potentially, assuming everything goes well, to go to the regulators and to actually ask for product approval as early as the end of this year. They will have to review the, the file, which will lead to potential approval in the first quarter of the first half of 21. That's for approval that can be used for millions and millions, hundreds of millions of people. What is possible, and it's going to be a country by country decision, 
is to potentially use some of the vaccine in emergency use situation, which in some countries is already written into law. In some mm -hmm. countries, it is not, but that can change quickly. So in our case, we say that this year we should be able to make millions of doses per month available. With our current plant next year, we should be in the tens of millions, which will give you around 100 million doses in 2021. We are currently working, it still has not happened, so I want to be cautious, but we are currently working on the strategic question, which is how do we get to a billion doses? We think we have a line of sight on how to get there. And I hope that soon we should be able to explain how. Getting that regulatory approval requires not only rapid work by the scientists, but also by the regulators. Johnson & Johnson's Paul Stoffels again. Collaboration is unprecedented. I mean, if I look at how we work today with the regulators in the world, where normally we have paper processes which take weeks and months to get feedback, Today, we talk about getting feedback from regulators within the day. Yeah, so, and, and the collaborations are really very, very intense. Even over the weekend, we are having meetings with regulators around the world at the moment. So it's really exceptionally, uh, exceptionally special as, as you go through it. And you see the commitment of everything, everybody in, involved. Getting a vaccine to billions of people is not just a scientific and manufacturing challenge. It's a logistical one. How do you get those doses out to the people wherever they are in the world? Gavi's Seth Berkeley. I mean, obviously, it's different than ever before in terms of the magnitude speed. And as Paul talked about, the cooperation now, the breakdown of walls, the, the desire to work together is stronger than it's ever been. Of course, we've honed some of this in the past. He mentioned Ebola was an opportunity to come together and experiment with this, but not at the scale we're talking about. And this is why the private sector is critical. Paul talked about the private sector for vaccines, but let me talk about a different role for the private sector, which is going to be in distribution, bringing innovation in. How do we do last mile? We're working with UPS on that. We're working with drones that deliver equipment. We're working to have tracking that's available for contact tracing being used for this. You know, we've set that up as a public-private partnership born out of the WEF, and we have a matching fund that allows us to work with industry. So obviously we welcome their resources, but what we need is their technology, their way to organize, and their ability to go down. That was Seth Berkeley, Chief Executive Officer of Gavi. You also heard from Paul Stoffels, Chief Scientific Officer of Johnson & Johnson, and Stefan Balsell, CEO of Moderna. They were speaking at a virtual conference hosted by the World Economic Forum as part of its COVID action platform. Now I'm joined by my colleague, Linda Lassina in New York. Hi, Linda. Hi, Robin. How are you? Great, thanks. How are you? Very good. Very good. You're going to tell us your pick of the week. You're going to give us three articles from the uh, World Economic Forum website that caught your eye this week. So this week, I'm looking at uh, various ways that we can shape our own futures in the short term and in the long term. Go ahead. What's the first one? Looking at the very short term, uh, an organizational psychologist wrote this week about the importance of detachment for us. She said that lockdown can have us feeling really exhausted, especially given the self-control that we need to manage all of the new demands that we're facing at home day to day. And she says that uh, finding ways to detach, uh, including activities that absorb us and keep us away from our email and from our computer, that they can be really important and help us uh, take back our energy and our time. Worth it just for the headline, this one. The headline is, is working from home not working? Here are 10 tips to help you focus. That's by Vladislav Rivkin of 
Aston University. What's your second story? My second piece deals more with the, the medium term. A, a top exec for, exec for Deloitte, he shared some advice for leaders in a time of so much change. It's, it's best to think in six-week sprints. He said that that approach can help you make sure that you're working toward realistic goals and that you're actually meeting current needs. Good advice. That one's called COVID-19, how leaders can create a new and better normal. What's the third story? My last piece deals with solving really, really big problems for the longer term. A finance minister for Equatorial Guinea, he said that the COVID crisis was so stark for parts of the African continent that it could actually help force positive change, showing the need to invest in health systems or push for industrialization to get people closer to supplies. But he said that at the heart of that push is one constant, people tapping into their own faith that change is still possible regardless of what they're facing in the present. That one's called Three Ways COVID-19 Could Actually Spark a Better Future for Africa. They're all live on our website, weforum.org. You can find lots more information and articles and analysis of the pandemic there. Linda, thanks very much for your pick of the week. Thanks for having me, Robin. Thanks also to Gareth Nolan for helping produce World vs. Virus. You can find all our coverage of COVID-19 at weforum.org and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, YouTube and on Twitter using the handle at WEF. Please subscribe to receive this every week. Just search World vs. Virus on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks very much for listening. See you next week.